It all comes down to the resurrection. If the resurrection of Jesus is true, it is the greatest news in mankind's history. So is there historical evidence that this event, in fact, is true? Welcome to Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerin. Dr. Zuckerin and I are in the studio today to talk about the evidence for the resurrection. And while you're listening, be sure you go to evidenceandanswers.org because we have many resources, not only on the resurrection of Jesus, but as we like to say, everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, interviews with experts, Pat's books, past shows that you may not have heard, and information on getting more involved with Evidence and Answers. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Pat, it's good to have you in the studio again. We've been talking about the resurrection. In particular, we've been talking about the five major objections to the resurrection that have come down through history. All of those have fallen on hard times. They just don't account for all the facts, as you talked about last time. Are there some newer objections that have come out today? Yes, Kevin. You know, as you mentioned, the first five theories that we talked about that try to offer some alternative explanation to the resurrection of Christ have simply failed because they fail to account for the evidence that is there. A great place to start is the Gospels themselves. You know, are they a very accurate historical record and do they present to us an accurate historical record of the life and ministry and death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And scholars who have studied the Gospels have realized that it is indeed a very accurate historical document, uh, one of the most scrutinized, but also a gospel that has proven itself to be a very accurate historical work is the Gospel of Luke. Uh, archaeologists have confirmed that Luke names 32 countries, 54 cities, and 9 islands without error. And in fact, Luke's accuracy is demonstrated in even his details, such as the titles of government officials. You know, he names Licinius, the Tetrarch of Abilene in Luke chapter 3, Gallio, the proconsul of Achaia in Acts chapter 18, Plubius, the first man of the island in Acts 28. Many thought that Luke was mistaken here or that these titles were invented somehow, but archaeology has discovered that these were indeed historical figures and these are the correct titles of officials in these areas. And a real famous story, Dr. William Ramsey sought to discredit the Gospel of Luke and Acts and traveled to the Palestine, Greece area and for years researched that area and the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts. And he did so with the intent to show the inaccuracies of the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts. However, after years of research, when it was all over, he concluded this. He states, Luke is a historian of first rank. In short, this author should be placed along with the very greatest of historians. And so William Ramsey gave his life to Jesus Christ as a result of the things that he discovered. And archaeologists have discovered that the Gospels are a very accurate historical record. I mean, we could go through hundreds of archaeological discoveries. You know, I'll, I'll just give you a couple examples. Up in Caesarea Maritima in northern Israel, there's a beautiful stadium with a coliseum where they race their chariots and an amphitheater where they did their plays. Just a beautiful stadium that was built there. And in 1961, a plaque was discovered. Now, this stadium was built in the early first century, anywhere from 26 to 37 AD. And a plaque was discovered, and it's called the Pontius Pilate plaque. 
And there's Greek words that are still on it. And the Greek is very readable there. And this plaque discovered in 1961 states, Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea, erected a building in dedication to the emperor Tiberius. And so here we have archaeological confirmation that indeed Pontius Pilate was a historical figure. He's a man who sentenced Christ to death, and indeed, he did it during the rule of the Emperor Tiberius, as described in the Gospels. Uh, in 1990, in a royal chamber, the ossuary of Caiaphas was discovered, made front pages of Middle East archaeology magazines all over the world. And uh, Caiaphas, as you know, is the high priest in that mock trial sentence, Jesus to death. And so, not only do we have archaeological discoveries that confirm the historical accuracies of the Gospels, you know, we also have close to a dozen non-Christian historical sources, or what we can call anti-Christian sources, Jewish and Roman. And the reason I would call them anti-Christian is that they despise Christians, and you can see that in their writing. And these non-Christian works affirm many of the events and the individuals named in the Gospels. Now, Pat, the, the archaeological confirmation of the New Testament, that just bolsters the historical trustworthiness of it and the, the accuracy of it. Right. Archaeology shows that what you've got here is a very accurate historical document. And when you have a historical work that is confirmed over and over and over again by hundreds of archaeological discoveries, you can have confidence in its historical accuracy. And when you have non-Christian sources that are antagonistic to your particular belief system, as uh, many of these Roman and Jewish works are, that's powerful testimony that your events that you have recorded are indeed historically accurate. You know, in those familiar with law, you know, in court, if your enemy affirms the facts of your account and he has really no reason to do so, enemy attestation is powerful evidence that your account is indeed true. And that's what we have here in these non-Christian sources as well as the archaeology here. So we can be very confident that the Gospels are a very accurate historical record that recorded the life of Jesus very accurately. Talk about Dr. Simon Greenleaf, because we hear his name a lot when it comes to the Harvard Law School and the fact that he put Harvard Law on the map. Yes, Kevin, you know, Simon Greenleaf is the founder of the Harvard Law School who wrote the textbook on legal evidence and was converted to Christianity based on his careful examination of the gospel witness from a legal perspective. So he put it under legal scrutiny of what it would go under on a, in a court case in the courts here in the United States, and he concluded that indeed it would pass the scrutiny of uh, the legal standards we have set here. He writes in his book, copies which had been as universally received and acted upon as the four Gospels would have been received in evidence in any court of justice without the slightest hesitation. And so that's what he concluded as a very highly regarded founder of one of the greatest law schools in our country. There are several facts that are undisputed that all sides agree upon. Christian, skeptics, and liberal scholars agree upon regarding the resurrection. And the first is that Christ died by means of crucifixion. Uh, that's clearly attested to. The New Testament accounts attest to that. 
We have non-Christian sources that attest to that. Tacitus, Josephus, the Jewish Talmud, Thallus, and others affirm this fact. In fact, two of the most liberal New Testament scholars affirm the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. John Dominic Crossan, the leader of the Jesus Seminar, a man who rejects 80% of the Gospels as historical, but when it comes to the crucifixion of Christ, he states that he, Christ, was crucified is as sure as anything historical can ever be. Bart Ehrman, a man who denies the historical reliability of the Gospels, denies the resurrection, but when it comes to the crucifixion, Bart Ehrman states this, one of the most certain facts of history is that Jesus was crucified on the orders of the Roman prefect of Judea, Pontius Pilate. Second, that the tomb site was known and was found empty. You know, we have a very interesting archaeological discovery here called the Nazareth Decree. Now, What's interesting about uh, the Nazareth Decree found in 1878 is that it was inscribed with a decree from the Emperor Claudius somewhere about 40 to 50 AD. And it was a decree that no graves should be disturbed or bodies extracted or moved. Now, this type of decree is not uncommon, but the startling fact is that here it says in this decree here, the line reads, the offender shall be sentenced to capital punishment on the charge of violation of a sepulcher. Now, other notices warned of a fine, but death for disturbing graves is very unusual. And a very likely explanation is that Claudius, having heard of the Christian doctrine of the resurrection and the empty tomb of Christ, while investigating the riots in AD 49, decided not to let any such report surface again. So this would make sense in light of the Jewish argument that the body had been stolen, as reported in Matthew 28. So this is early testimony to the strong and persistent belief that Jesus Christ did indeed rise from the dead and that the grave was empty. Third, we have the resurrection appearances. You know, hundreds of individuals claim to have seen the risen Jesus Christ. Fourth, we have the changed lives of the disciples. Remember, the disciples went into hiding after the death of Jesus. However, they were suddenly transformed from men cowering in fear to suddenly boldly preaching the resurrection in the city of Jerusalem, in the very city where Christ was crucified, in the very city where the enemies who had crucified Christ remained and were still in power. What's the most reasonable explanation for this sudden transformation? Now, in recent times, there have been some very creative alternative explanations presented. One of them is presented by John Dominic Crossan, the, a leading liberal scholar, a leader of the Jesus Seminar, a man who rejects 80% of the Gospels as uh, historically reliable. Now, his explanation is this. He believes that Jesus was not buried in a sealed tomb, but instead his body was thrown into a shallow grave and wild dogs dug up the body of Jesus and ate it so that when the disciples began preaching the resurrection of Christ, they could not find the body of Christ because the wild dogs had eaten it up. Now, there's numerous flaws with this particular theory. First, why is it that this explanation was never presented until now, until the 21st century? You know, why wasn't this presented back in the time of Christ? Why did we have to wait 2,000 years for someone to present this theory? Jesus was a public figure who had a public execution. 
And why is it that no one in that generation brought up the fact that he was never buried in a tomb, but instead in a shallow grave? Second, the gospel writers go out of their way to tell you where Jesus was buried. He was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Now, Cross encounters by saying, the gospel writers made up this man, Joseph. But this would be a disastrous thing to do. I mean, the gospel writers identify Joseph of Arimathea, state he's a very prominent member of the Jewish council. And this fact could have been easily verified as true or false because they picked such a high-profile government official and said Jesus is buried in this man's tomb. That fact could have easily been identified. If they wanted to make up some kind of figure, they would have picked an obscure person, not a highly public figure as Joseph of Arimathea was. And remember, the Gospels and the message of the resurrection is being preached at and circulating in Jerusalem where these events took place, where the people could verify the facts of the disciples and the fact that they could not uh, refute the facts that the disciples presented shows you that indeed their message was indeed true, that Christ was crucified as recorded in the Gospels in a sealed tomb of Joseph of Arimathea and his body was not there on the third day. So John Dominic Crossan's alternative theory really doesn't hold any water. You know, Pat, Islam revers Jesus, but apparently they don't believe that he rose again from the dead. What is their explanation? Right, you know, Muslims believe that Allah would never allow one of his prophets to die such a disgraceful death. Now, this is really important because Islam is really prominent today in all that's going on in the Middle East and in the world. And the Quran teaches that Jesus was not crucified, but someone took Christ's place upon the cross. And there are several candidates here who are mentioned. Some schools of Islam teach that God made Judas look like Jesus and put Judas on the cross. Some schools teach that it was Simon of Cyrene, you know, the man who, when Jesus fell, he picked up Jesus' cross and carried Jesus' cross for him. You know, so poor guy, poor Simon, you know, just wanted to help the guy out and he ended up getting crucified himself. Or that it was a young boy that Allah transformed to look like Jesus and took Christ's place upon the cross. However, big problems with this explanation. On what basis does Islam reject the crucifixion of Christ? You know, if you ask a Muslim, they base it on the words of Muhammad, who wrote the Quran 700 years after the death and resurrection of Christ. But really, this is circular reasoning. You know, think about it. Why do you believe that the account that Muhammad gave? Well, because Muhammad's the prophet of God. You know, well, that's just simply circular reasoning. Uh, we have too much evidence that Christ was indeed crucified. We have the eyewitness accounts of the Gospels, which are first-generation accounts. We have non-Christian sources, such as the Talmud, Josephus, Tacitus, Thales, Pliny, and others. And also remember, the Old Testament prophesies of the death and resurrection of the Messiah, and Jesus predicted his own death and resurrection from the dead. Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 through 19. Matthew 21, verses 33 to 43. John chapter 2, you know, after he overturned the temple, he, they said, on what authority do you have to do this? And Jesus said, destroy this temple the temple of his body, and in three days, I will raise it up. You know, John chapter 12. So there are numerous 
instances in the Gospels where Christ predicted his death and his resurrection. Now, if Jesus did not die and rise from the dead, then he would have been a false prophet, a man who prophesied something that he was going to do and did not do it. So you need to ask the Muslim, well, then was Jesus then a false prophet? However, no Muslim would claim that Jesus was a false prophet. So they're kind of stuck in a jam here now. You know, was Jesus falsely prophesying here that he would die and rise from the dead, but indeed didn't? Someone else did? You know, on what, ba- on what historical grounds do you reject the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? And really, they don't have any historical basis. Pat, you know, I want to talk about some of the implications for us today if Jesus really is risen from the dead. But one thing to bring out uh, that you bring out from time to time, and that is Jesus didn't rise naturally from the dead. That's not the Christian hypothesis or what the scripture claims. The New Testament claimed that God raised Jesus from the dead. So this was, in fact, a supernatural event not just some kind of anomaly or strange event that Jesus somehow, his body somehow revived. That is highly, highly unlikely. People who are dead, I mean biologically dead, beyond clinical death, do not come back alive. And so the theory is that God raised Jesus from the dead. Right. You know, Kevin, um, the Bible states that God raised him from the dead. In John chapter 2, Jesus prophesied that he will raise himself from the dead. And in Romans chapter 8, it says the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. So you have all three members of the Trinity involved in this significant, miraculous event, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What are the implications for us today? If Christ is risen, what difference does it make in modern times? Yeah, Kevin, you know, that's a great question because the resurrection has indeed monumental implications for every person. You know, first, if Jesus did rise from the dead, then he indeed, he was who he said he was, the divine son of God, God in the flesh. And the greatness of God's love is revealed in that he chose to enter into our suffering and pain and die on the cross, the death we so deserved in order to give us eternal life. See, God didn't stand by indifferently and say, well, you guys are really in a jam. I hope you guys can work this thing out. No, he left heaven and came and entered into our world and suffered alongside of us and died this horrible death that we may attain everlasting life. Second, the resurrection demonstrates that Jesus is indeed Lord over all creation, over all men and women. Jesus is Lord. He has demonstrated his lordship through his miracles and of course one of his greatest miracles is the resurrection defeating death itself third all that jesus taught is indeed true therefore any teaching that contradicts the teaching of christ must indeed be false so jesus taught in john 14:6 he's the only way to eternal life eternal life comes through him and him alone through the sacrifice he made upon the cross Any teaching that contradicts that must be false. So since the teachings of Hinduism teaches alternative ways to salvation other than Jesus, uh, the teachings of that religion must ultimately be false. Islam teaches salvation by works and not through Christ alone. Therefore, their teachings are ultimately false, as with the other world religions. Fourth, there's life beyond the grave. 
and our eternal destiny depends on our decision to receive or reject Jesus Christ. You know, eternal life is found in Christ alone, for Jesus alone demonstrated that he has authority over sin and death. And it's through Christ our sins are forgiven, and he has made the way to a relationship with God and eternal life possible. And finally, Kevin, you know, there's a decision for each one of us to make. God has given us his son and made a relationship with him possible through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And God calls each one of us to make a decision to receive the gift of eternal life given through Jesus Christ. As the Bible states in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, we all have sinned and fallen short of God's perfect standard, but God made forgiveness for our sins possible by sending his son to die on the cross for our sins. And the Bible says, For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, that whoever should believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So life everlasting in all its fullness today. Life, all that it was ever meant to be, can can be yours today. But God will not force himself upon you. You know, he invites you into a relationship with him, but you must choose to believe and receive the gift he offers. Uh, he offers you today through his son, Jesus Christ. So those are some of the remarkable, uh, monumental implications uh, given to us as the result of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, Pat, my son, who's in high school, uh, as part of a, an assignment in history class, the students pit great, prominent people throughout history against each other in debate. Darwin against Stalin, Hitler against Martin Luther King, uh, and so on down the line. And Jesus is one of those figures, and I thought, well, how would you debate Jesus? He didn't say, what do you think about what I say? He said, who do you say that I am? And so Christ's identity, who he is, is what is important here. And the resurrection uh, is verification of that. Right, exactly, Kevin. You know, every person who has lived has eventually died. And no one has ever been able to conquer sin and the ultimate enemy of death. And Christ is the only one who prophesied his own death and his resurrection. Thus affirming his statement that he is indeed the source of life when he said uh, there to Mary and Martha at the tomb of Lazarus, you know, I am the resurrection and the life. The resurrection confirms those words that he is the author of life and eternal life. And so you're correct, Kevin. It's about who is Jesus and do you have a relationship with the divine son of God? And what he said was important, and what he taught was important. And he did debate the, the Pharisees and the scribes and, and so on. But wouldn't you agree, Pat, that Buddhism would survive without the Buddha? Or uh, someone else could have come along and basically kind of taught the same thing? I mean, a philosophy may be attributed to a person, but the teaching is more important than the individual in the case of virtually all historical personages except for Jesus. Right. You know, all religions, you can take away the founder and essentially you have that religion there. Yet when it comes to Christianity, it all centers on the person of Christ. You take away Christ and, and you've got nothing. Pat, you've been really busy with your Hawaii apologetics conferences. And uh, these are getting bigger and bigger every year and exciting. And one of the most exciting things is, is that uh, if you can't come to Hawaii, these are also available at evidenceandanswers.org. 
Yes, Kevin, you know, that website is a tremendous resource for all Christians and, and seekers looking for answers to see if there's substance and validity and evidence to Christianity. And it's a great resource. There's over a hundred interviews there, uh, over a hundred shows there. Uh, about a third are interviews with some of the top Christian scholars from all over the world. Uh, about a third are seminars that I have done and other guests, uh, Dr. Norman Geisler, William Lane Craig, Gary Habermas, Kirby Anderson, and others. And also uh, some of the debates, Kevin, that you and I have done uh, over the air. So it's a tremendous resource. Also articles uh, from myself and some of our top Christian scholars who have been guests on the show, books and CDs, uh, numerous resources for the believer and the seeker, those who are really seeking to see if indeed Christianity has the evidence to back up its claims. A tremendous resource there at evidenceandanswers.org. All right, go there today. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Well, we're out of time today on Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucharin, but you can get both of these shows on The Resurrection, Part 1 and Part 2, when you go to evidenceandanswers.org. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll find resources there on everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism. And there's a button you can click if you'd like to be more involved with Evidence and Answers. If you believe that we ought to know what we believe, but also why we believe it, and be able to back it up, then please support us. Click the Donate button when you go to evidenceandanswers.org. It helps us stay on this station and keeps Pat speaking all over the world on these very crucial topics. So that's evidenceandanswers.org. Let us hear from you and be sure you browse around our resources. Thanks so much for being here. We'll see you next time on Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerman.